Before we jump into the latest episode of Freelance Pod, have you heard about our first live podcast recording? That's right. Freelance Pod is going live in front of an audience. We'll be at the London Podcast Festival in September. You can join us at King's Place to watch me make an episode of Freelance Pod with a very special guest. He's a Syrian refugee, a journalist and a stand-up comedian. Abdul Sahan will join me on stage for the event. Here's a clip from episode 30, Being a Refugee is a Dream Come True, where Abdul explains the absurdities of the life in the UK test, which all prospective British citizens have to take. One of the sections in the, these tests is about British values. And there was one of the, one of the uh, things about British values, the ability to laugh at yourself. And, and I didn't know, it's like, okay, the, the, the ability to laugh at, at myself, does that make me British? And there was another one, there was a question, actually a mock test, asking you uh, what, which one of these are British values. And it's going to the pub, um, eating fish and chips, laughing at yourself, or having a university degree. I said, well, obviously not having a university degree, but the rest of them, the three of them could be, any of them could be British value, like have eaten fish and chips while you're at the pub and laughing at yourself. That's it, I've cracked it. Uh, please give me the British citizenship now. If you'd like to hear more from Abdul Tahan, come along and see him interviewed on stage by me at the London Podcast Festival live recording of Freelance Pod. It's happening on Saturday the 7th of September at 2pm. The venue is King's Place, King's Cross, and you can buy tickets for under a tenner at www.kingsplace.co.uk forward slash what's dash on forward slash words forward slash freelance dash pod. You can also find out more about the London Podcast Festival on Twitter at London Podfest or one word. Let me know if you're coming along to my live recording. I'd love to see you there. On to this week's episode. lot of fun to be had we this was in the era before the internet I was charged every Saturday with coming up with a really big sort of four-page story that I you know that was that was a sort of precursor to fly on the wall stuff so we would get all sorts of things I remember um, sending Lydia Slater off to be they were really stunts is what they were so we so there was a whole um, YBAs, young British artists, and um, they were a huge thing in the mid 90s. And the sort of a lot of our audience at the Mail couldn't quite understand what, what it all meant, meant, you know, all those dots and things and, and pickled, um, pickled sharks. <laughs> so I got one of our reporters to become a sort of YBA, and um, uh, she and we hired, I had an awful lot of money to do this. I had about a £10,000 budget every Saturday to spend on one story. It was just ridiculous. So so Lydia went off and she became um, an artist and she can speak Russian. So she, we got all dressed up and we booked this um, hall and we invited people and she was busy hammering raw chicken into the walls and stuff. And it was an actual exhibition so we put on this sort of spoof exhibition and people came to it and they thought she was and she had no artistic um, artistic bone in her body really but she you know splashed a bit of paint around hello and welcome to freelance pod my name's Chandrika Chakrabarti and I'll be your host 
Freelance Pod tells stories about creativity and the digital revolution. I've been a journalist for 13 years now and a podcaster for nearly two, so I've seen a lot of the changes that digital has brought to the media. I've also trained a lot of people on how to deal with all those changes. I'm now freelance and juggle a number of jobs myself, writing for different audiences, making audio, teaching, speaking, presenting. It's a classic portfolio digital career. On each episode of this podcast, I ask a person who works in a creative field to tell me about how the internet's transformed or invented their job. From Twitter's director of curation to Ed Miliband's podcast producer, along with a few appearances from some guy called Charlie Brooker, we've been hearing brilliant stories about how the internet has revolutionised work and, well, our lives. If you enjoy the podcast, please do rate, review and subscribe over on Apple Podcasts and why not tell a friend too? This helps our community grow and that enables me to keep making Freelance Pod. You can also sign up for the Freelance Pod newsletter, which comes out every time there's a new episode, which is about every week. You can find the newsletter at sachandrika.substack.com. Sachandrika is spelt S-U-C-H-A-N-D-R-I-K-A. So that's sachandrika.substack.com. The podcast is also on social, of course, and I do love hearing from you, so feel free to get in touch. You can find it on Twitter at freelance underscore pod underscore. It's on Instagram at freelance pod, all one word. There's also a Facebook group. Just search for freelance pod. The podcast isn't officially on LinkedIn, but you can find me on there too. I'm Sachandrika Chakrabarti, and I do share all that juicy freelance pod content on there. So on to this week's guest. In this episode, I speak to Jackie Annesley, who's creative director at Soda Says. Soda stands for School of the Digital Age, and it's a startup that curates the best of useful, wearable and adorable technology for its readers. Jackie also hosts their podcast, which is called Talk Tech to Me, and the theme is she asks the interviewees all about their relationship to their phone. The first guest was Anne Robinson of The Weakest Link, fame and many other things, and it's really funny. Um, go and have a listen and uh, come back and tell me if you can work out who Sweet Pea is. I think it's a person. I think it is. Um, Jackie also writes a weekly newsletter for them as well. So if you go to sodasays.com, you can find the newsletter and um, all of the amazingly curated pieces of tech as well. But before Jackie moved into the tech world, she worked in newspapers for decades, starting in the 80s. She began her career in Bahrain, moved to Australia, and then eventually made her way to London. She was one of the first editors on the Daily Mail's female section. She then moved over to the Evening Standard and was there for almost a decade. And then her last job in journalism was editing the Sunday Times Star magazine. Kind of an amazing job, right? While she was in that job, two of her columnists got together and um, she commissioned a podcast from them. It was called Pan Dolly Podcast and the columnists were Pandora Sykes and Dolly Alderton. Is it sounding familiar? After they left the Sunday Times, they went on to make The High Low, which is one of the most popular podcasts out there. Jackie's amazing stories of how journalism worked in an analogue age and um, how it's changed during her career into something very digital. And beyond that, she's even left journalism to go into tech. So she has loads of brilliant stories, great advice. And um, yeah, it was a delight to speak to her. So let's see what she has to say. So my name's Jackie Annesley. I am the creative director of Soda Says. 
um, which is an online tech retailer. And every week I do a, a very short Sunday morning newsletter that goes out. You can sign up on um, on the website. And we've just started a podcast series, which um, we began recently with Anne Robinson, but we've got um, lots more people coming up, like the photographer Rankin and um, Pandora Sykes, who's just had a big book deal, and um, Sophia Money Coots. So a mixture of old and young and um, various people who we love. It's called Talk Tech to Me, yes, and it really is about the relationship between you and that little computer you have in your pocket. I first got into journalism um, back in 1986. Oh, actually, it was before then. It was 1984. So I was born and grew up in the Middle East, and um, I went to boarding school, and I went back home to Bahrain, and I got a job on the local newspaper there called the Gulf Daily News, which was <laughs> this really funny newspaper daily that was run by old ex-Fleet Street soaks, really, who were out in Bahrain for the tax-free money and, you know, endless alcohol, I think. But um, they taught me a lot. And we did start on, um, you know, really old-fashioned typewriters. You put in two slits of paper with a carbon uh, in between, and then you put one on the spike and the other went down to the subs and then they wrote all over it. It was really, it's how journalism had been done for decades. And um, so that was in the mid 80s. I suppose in London at the time, Murdoch was busy getting rid of all that, but it hadn't quite reached Bahrain. Has Bahrain changed as much as somewhere like Dubai? Dubai? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I haven't been back there for about 10 years. But um, yes, it is now... I mean, imagine the news desk there would be, you know, hyper-technical because they buy everything in like that and it's just one big gleaming shopping mall. <laughs> wow. But, um, yeah, no, it was a great introduction to journalism because it, it was they did have some great people there. And, um, and then, I went to, then I went to Australia for five years also as a journalist. And worked for AAP, Australian Associated Press, and then Murdoch had a paper called The Telegraph in Sydney, which was a tabloid paper full of old Fleet Street people as well. And I did, um, I think I edited uh, the TV section. It was called The Green Guide, that's right. <laughs> it was great. It was the heyday, the 80s, over the TV stations had so much money. And I'd be flown down to Melbourne for a day or for a lunch, or it was like going to Rome for lunch and it was I kind of hit journalism at a good time it was flush with money it was great fun there were always royals coming to do royal tours and um it was good but I mean it was a great career it really was I had such fun and I stayed there for five years and then thought can I make it back in London was that always the feeling? I think it's like that now, that you can go somewhere else, but London's like the proving ground. I think in newspapers it is. I mean, Sydney literally had about Sydney Morning Herald, The Telegraph, and The Australian, which was a, um, a Melbourne-based newspaper. But um, that was pretty much it. had lots of magazines. But also, 
from a big country. It's a very small place. So I thought I'd go back to London and I got a job on Today through a contact of mine and was there for a few years down in Wapping and that was that was good fun. So that was a new newspaper? That was so, yeah, so today, you probably know, so today was Britain's first colour newspaper. It was launched by a guy called Eddie Shaw and it really, you know, in a way it did move fast and break things. It certainly gave colour to newspapers and, um, but it, it it actually only lasted another few years. I then went on to the um, the mail, and I think by the mid-90s it had closed down because I think by then, you know, that the sort of rot, had, all the, the glory days had peaked and people were starting to buy fewer newspapers. So um, so it closed while I was on the mail. I, I never forget. We were all in conference and... Um, very few times has the news editor tapped on the door and broken up conference because it's sort of sacrosanct. And so, um, so John, the, the, the news editor, came in and said, um, the Today newspaper's folded! And Paul Dacre literally shot out of his seat. And he was a brilliant editor. He, he said, right, we're going to do a splash tomorrow. And it's going to say, welcome today, readers. And, you know, and he had his eyes... Site set on the, I think there were 1.5 million of them of those readers out there to be had, and that's what his initial immediate reaction was. That would be the natural reaction. Yeah. Oh, yeah. new readers, and um, yeah. So that was it. Was it was fun on the mail? It was really fast paced and very long hours. You would, on, I was on female as a deputy editor, be in at nine and leave at about ten at night. We were, we were speaking before about how difficult it is to, to leave an, a newsroom, and it, it really is. And if you're in any way in a position of um, being in charge, you, you have to see the whole thing off. And it is incredibly long days interspersed with terrible food, and <laughs> but lots of fun and banter. With female, was it a daily section then? Yes, yeah, so it was six days a week, really. So there was a big section... Um, Thursday and then the rest of the time I mean Paul just kept increasing the the amount of pages he gave us but he would um, he'd usually give us two spreads every day or sometimes more he always wanted it about seven o'clock at night that he'd say I'm stuck for a page three what have you got which is quite a big ask he wanted something picture-led or colourful and in those days, it was, it was quite old-fashioned, but we would keep everything in one of those zip, sort of like a, a zip file, and we'd have the printed copy with the actual photographs all in a nice little plastic zip file, and we'd store them, you know, the ones that, that, that could last. And so we'd go through there and try and find... Um, I remember we once found um, a story that was a sort of an okay story, but he could see it was brilliant. It was when the River Cafe, it's still an amazing restaurant, they had a cookbook out and um, they one of the, the most popular things was this um, chocolate nemesis, it was called, but it required 12 eggs and it almost didn't work. Nobody who who tried the recipe could make it work. So we did this whole story anyway. 
The chocolate chocolate nemesis gate ended up on page three once. So it was always, you never knew what you were going to be asked for or, you know, what would turn up in the paper, really. So you had a literal physical file. So we had an an actual... Paul Dacre. Well, we commissioned so much stuff because there was a lot. All I can say about um, my experience there was that ideas were everything. If you Mm. didn't, and not only were they everything, Paul would say, they're also nothing if you can't make them work. So anyone can come up with a good idea. You have to make it work. So we used to have to come up with great ideas and make them work and find the pictures and so many things had to be ticked off for it to get into the paper. So we sort of filed with pages made up, ready yes, for when he asked. Yes, we'd have printed copy of the thing and then the pictures. So, I mean, these were in the days before really anyone looked on their computers. We just used a screen as a, you know... It was just the next step from a typewriter. Did you have kind of picture wires coming through or any on a monitor? Nothing. No, there was a picture editor who would come and show us literally negatives sometimes. And we'd actually go through and we'd get on the light box. I know this sounds like it was a long time ago, but it really wasn't. They were doing that up until the late 90s. Well, that was the quickest way, I suppose, fresh from the camera. So yeah. you first pick as well. Yeah, and God forbid if you lot, and we used to lose quite a lot of negatives, and it cost us a fortune. We were always getting bills from those big picture agencies. And I think part of the mail, what the mail still does now, and did back then, is it will pay for exclusive photo sets, which will bring in the readers. Yeah, no, we um, the new we didn't handle that so much as the um, the news picture desk, but. Um, Yes, they. Well, this was before digital cameras, so you had to come in, develop your film, and then show the picture desk. So it was um, it was quite a laborious thing, and uh, it, it, there was yeah, a huge prize for a great picture in those days. I mean, the paparazzi made a lot of money, and especially out of the whole Princess Diana era, that was you know that really fed it. Sadly, yeah, that we look we look at that era very diff- really differently now. Yeah, but she must have been on front pages. Every day, really from the wedding onwards. From 81, when did she got married? People were fascinated. People were just fascinated and they'd never had anyone like her and she was, she loved the media. She really courted the media. I know that's not what many people think, but she really did. She used to ring, ring up people on the mail all the time. She definitely used used it. It was a two-way thing and all the editors met her and they all went to Kensington Palace. It was, you know, it was part of the deal really. And then in the end they both, Charles and her, were always trying to outdo each other. It was was a different, it's very different to, um, you know, Harry and Meghan. I mean, it's different now that we couldn't we couldn't do what we did there now. Um, but um, but there was a lot of fun to be had. We this was in the era before the internet. I was charged every Saturday with coming up with a really big sort of four page story that I you know that was that was a sort of precursor to fly on the wall stuff. So we would get all sorts of things. I remember um, sending 
Lydia Slater off to be, they were really stunts, is what they were. So we, so there was the whole um, YBAs, young British artists, and um, they were a huge thing in the mid 90s. And the sort of, a lot of our audience at the mail couldn't quite understand what, what it all meant, meant, you know, all those dots and things and pickled um, Pickle sharks. <laughs> So I got one of our reporters to become a sort of YBA and um, uh, she, and we hired, I had an awful lot of money to do this. I had about £10,000 budget every Saturday to spend on one story. It was just ridiculous. So so Lydia went off and she became um, an artist and she can speak Russian. So she, we got all dressed up and we booked this um, hall and we invited people and she was busy hammering raw chicken into the walls and stuff. And it was an actual exhibition. So we put on this sort of spoof exhibition and people came to it and they thought she was and she had no artistic an artistic bone in her body, really. But she, you know, splashed a bit of paint around and it was just having a bit of fun really chicken and paint <laughs> exactly what what uh, what people thought was you know was real art and i'm sure you know in other people's hands it was but we were just really trying to have fun with it but that that was the sort of thing we did and we also sent her off to Cannes to become a starlet a norwegian starlet and there's this amazing picture of her on you know on on the sea with her agent and um, in a white suit, surrounded by all these people, and we got she got on radio and everything. It, so, you know, no one you couldn't Google anyone then. It was like, yep, she is a starlet, and people believed it. How much impact on newspapers do you think TV had? Uh, most people had a telly by the mid seventies, um, but I don't think TV. They were a bit late to the party when it came to having fun, like the newspapers were much more fun. I think all those reality shows started afterwards, but we'd been doing them throughout the 90s. I mean, I was, I think we made, I remember sending this guy, I had to sack him in the end, um, to, um, we made a, a restaurant. It was also the era of, you know, the big restaurants. and It was a restaurant that only sold things that had flowers, on, edible flowers, and um, you know that we we got a listing in, in Time Out, and we had to get sort of the floor was covered in in in, in something that honestly that the the um, the leaseholder went berserk when he found out what we'd done to the site. But all these things were were um, were just sort of reinventions that were great fun. That then I think the TV. TV um, stations picked up on and all that wife swap and all that stuff became great fodder for telly in the noughties but um, but no but they weren't really doing it then you know all that and certainly not all that um, reality TV hadn't started then we sort of sort of pricked the pomposity of these things that were happening and it was um, and also we had we had money to spend it, the newspaper business was never been so profitable in the 90s you know they just opened the book on a monday and all the pages of ads were filled by lunchtime so you know there wasn't um there, there wasn't uh, i don't think i ever i think i went to one budget meeting in my whole 10 years at the mail and that was at the very end 
So I'm sorry you guys came in and missed that, but it was great. So you were at the mail. So I was at the mail until 2001. And then um, by that stage, I was married and then I, I had some children and I started to go part time. And it didn't really work out with the mail being part time. So um, I then moved on to the what was called the London Evening Standard then. And that was great fun. That was a really lovely time in journalism. I was working three days a week and it was very, you know, it was near my home and it was, it was good fun, the standard. There was a great team on there. We used to laugh a lot and, um, you know, it was a very early start, but quite a sort of, you know, reasonable finish. I wasn't there till 10 at night. I was, could be home by 6.30 and it was, um, and the you know the London news it was a, it's a great it's a great paper and it's a great capital to find news from and there was always and those days people still paid fifty p for it, um, but then the change really started. You would be talking about how technology has impacted on papers and um, by yeah by mid noughties you know the first of many round of redundancies were being made and. Then it went free and, you know, newsprint went up and um, it's, it, it's yes, it's, it's a much different paper to, to what it used to be. So I went from there to the Sunday Times and, um, and the Sunday Times was changing. They moved out of Wapping and I was on News Review for about a year and then I moved to Style for um, a few years and that... You know, things were rapidly changing then and, um, you know, e emails and podcasts and all sorts of things were, were coming about and, um, and the paywall became really important because people were trying to stem the, the loss of readers, really, because everyone was moving to just the internet and free, free journalism. It's kind of thing about news being generic and... What can you bring that's then a kind of different? Yeah, that makes people think, oh, it's, this is style magazine. Yeah. How did you sort of deal with that challenge? Well, it had sort of been relaunched in the early noughties by um, Tiffany Dark, and she did a great job of making it quite sassy and quite, there was a lot of humour in it, quite spiky, and it was just different from a women's, normal women's supplement. So I just took that and try to you know keep the standard up and 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 also I was quite fascinated in the business side of fashion and you know what what really makes it work and and why designers fold and you know how come those Italian designers are there forever and we did a whole big series on the families behind the big fashion houses and um and then we try and sort of pick out the the great. I remember doing. Um, we did a piece actually. Pandora Sykes did it for me on. Um, I remember seeing everyone wearing this suede skirt, um, just on the internet, and, and and I said, you know, is and sales were sliding at M and S. So we did a page, and the headline was, "Can this skirt save M and S?" Which is a typical Daily Mail headline. So. Um, it went in on the Sunday, and um, it was just a one right-hand page. And it was, and it, I got her to sort of 
go through what was great about the skirt. So it's just a big picture of the skirt and then Alexa Chung had worn it and did a little and it was the right cart and the right price. Anyway, the next day, the mail picked it up on the Monday. Then whoever was doing, I can't remember who was doing um, the Wednesday column, um, she picked it up and then it was again in on Friday. <laughs> and so by which time I think the editor of the Sunday Times was furious with our new- news team for not picking it up at all. So um, so it was great to, you know, lead. It's great when other people pick up your, pick up your, you know, stories. As you know, as a journalist, it's, it's just, you know, you think, okay. Because so many things start with you thinking. Has anyone noticed this weird mm, thing? Yeah. And you ask other people, then they think it's a thing. Because mm. at the moment, there's a spotted dress. I saw Do that. Do you like the other it? Day. No, well, so I don't like it. I don't, I like, don't it. like it. I don't like it. Somebody wore it, but that is a, that's a, a great. Those are the stories we did in the nineties at the Mail, and and now and because they're, they're they're perennials. I mean, they're great stories, and it's true. They they probably you know if you look at their data, Zara have probably produced more of that dress than because every is everything's data driven. They will have known because they change their stock every two weeks, so they will have known that immediately became sold out. So that would have gone back to to Spain they would have done another load and another and another and just the sales would have kept coming and suddenly you have a story and a hit on your hands and you have a horrible nylon long spotty dress <laughs> I don't get it isn't that funny what people what is a popular item but yes I just want everyone to belt it in when I see it for, like if you're going to wear I I'm definitely sound like my mother I'm going to wear a belt it please yeah, no, but that's it's, it's a story that appeals isn't it yeah you know, we all have to get dressed in the morning, and that that's that is a great um, story that reflects, you know, summer twenty nineteen. I remember speaking to uh, a friend who has recently launched a, a, a platform for inf- influencers, and um, she said they once did a story on this haircut. Uh, I think she was working for Bloomberg or something. And it got such a huge um, response. It was a bit like, you know, the Rachel. Do you remember the Rachel haircut from Friends? We did so much about that in, on Female in the 90s. But they could see that that's what everyone was clicking on. So she had to do a haircut story at least once every few weeks. It was never as popular as some, but they knew that that was something people would click on. So the spotty dress story is is something that will come up again and, you know, next season, all those featured desks will be charged with finding another spotty dress story because it just, you know, gets the clicks. That's 100% how it works. So, oh, yeah. that did well. Can you get, do me another do one? Do more of the yeah. same again. No, yeah. And in the old days, you didn't have that data. You just knew it was a good story and you'd think that was great. But now it's almost like this is you can how see it on a screen. you can see it on a screen. You can see it all. I was, you've read my mind about going to the days before data. What was a measure of success for a story apart from other parts of the media picking up? I'm amazed I knew anything about anything because all I did for 10 years was read all the newspapers. But I didn't live the life. I mean, we'd sort of stumbled out at 10 at night and we had quite big expense accounts that we had to keep up to keep, you know, keep up with everything else. So we'd like have to go to a good restaurant 
and spend money on and then go fall into bed and then get up the next day. So I wasn't out finding stories, but we all looked at each other's stories and we hoped that, you know, there were people in real life actually living in the and world outside. Letters, I suppose, as well, like particularly with We did get a lot of letters in green ink, yeah. Yeah. But I um I quite like I really like dealing with uh, on style I used to always if people complained and our readership was quite old by everybody it, it was usually over 60 year olds who, who bought the Sunday Times but they if anyone complained about you know oh that model on page 29 is too thin I would ring them up personally and they were so shocked to hear me that I could always ring them round and I'd send them something from the beauty cupboard and it was really nice um, to sort of interact with the people who bought, the, bought our paper. We always looked at the sort of the mum and the teenager. Yeah. That was our audience. And um, once a year we'd, we'd have this big sale and we really saw them face to face, you know, a couple of hundred of them, and it was really great to see what they liked and, and to meet them. Um, I didn't do really any of that in the 90s. I was stuck behind my desk, running up and down the corridor. <laughs> you sort of deal with commercial things or audience things more as you progress up the ranks as well, don't you? As you become... Yes. Honestly, in the 90s, nobody dealt with the commercial department. We didn't, I didn't even know who was in charge. We had no idea. And Paul would throw adverts out if he didn't like them. So he had complete and utter contempt for the commercial department. They were not part of the editorial at all. We had nothing to do with them. And it was only in when I was at the Standard that, you know, advertorials and things crept in. But in the early days, um, there was absolutely, you know, nothing in common with either of those. We could never we could never mention a brand in a story. That would be really awful. It was so different. It was just clean news or features with no commercial content at all. Yes, I mean, there were some, some great people on the magazine who had a great sense of humour. Um, I think the, the barometer was a, great, was a great example of that. So yeah. um, that was written by Laura Atkinson, who's still there. And it's a great sort of template to, to you know, what's fun and what's popular and what's trending. And um, I think people love that still. And um, we had some great columnists at the time. There was a dating columnist, so um, uh, Dolly and Cosmo. And that was, a, that was really popular. Cosmo said, he's, you know, in all his years in journalism, he, he used to get stopped in the street and people used to run down the road and put their telephone numbers into his hand and... You know, um, it was a it was a great yeah, few years. So they had two separate columns. Two separate columns. So he was sort of in his early sixties, and Dolly was in her mid twenties, and they or late twenties. And so they every week. I mean, I think it did drove them mad. Um, they had to <laughs> they had to date basically. Um, but they were very good at it. I mean, columns don't last really more than a couple of years before they run out of steam, but. Um, and we, yeah, and then Dolly, I think it was Pandora's idea, I can't remember who was it, but we, we did, so we came up with the Pandolly podcast and the management weren't keen on it at all, but 
we really pushed it through and um, I used to have to listen to it every Thursday night and that was right at the end of the whole, you know, we, we'd go, on, we'd be on audition that day as well and I always wanted to make, for, for them to make it shorter but they um, they were good from the get-go, those two. They were really fun and they and they, when they left, um, they renamed it and it, as a high-low, it's, it's, it's brilliant, yeah. I'm very, always very proud when I listen to them. I think there's something about, it depends on what kind of podcast it is, but it's something of the nature of the column to it. It's weekly or fortnightly or monthly, has to have a bit of a theme, but essentially you can do what you want in it. But the audience or the reader has to know what they expect from you, so you go to a column yeah. expecting... Something you can relate to. And, and fun, you know, people just want to be entertained, which is why I think the most popular podcasts are often what people love, which is football or food or those running podcasts are insanely yeah. popular. Cycling. And... I know. So it's, people will really listen to, to whatever they're interested in, and it's a very democratic platform. Um, I've got... I like something you said, and I was gonna. Oh yeah, millennials use every second of their day. Yeah, right? they do. What has what has made you come to that conclusion in your dealings with millennials? Or, um, oh, so boy, like working on editorial for millennials, perhaps. Okay. Um, so I think you're right. I think we we often live further out yeah. in cities. We've got commutes. Um, there's something around. So I think with the internet, knowledge doesn't just sit in institutions or books or libraries. This something around costs that people want to learn as well as be entertained, which has always been journalism's problem, yeah. like how far do you do each one? And so there's something about like, well, if I can't afford uni, or if I can't afford an MA or a course, I'm going to get every bit of knowledge I mm. can. And I think that's a really sharp insight into millennials. I think you're totally right. And it's it's so easy to do, just stick your headphones in. Um, you know, my millennials are great. I've, lo- I've learned a lot about them since leaving newspapers and um they are always on the move they've always got a backpack they're always listening to a podcast what they don't seem to be doing is they never seem to like they go to festivals but they didn't they don't seem to go out clubbing and they i've never ever been in an office where they've said i've got such a hangover this morning (laughs) i don't know what they do to have fun really but they don't seem to Stay out as late and be as crazy as we were, but maybe that's just a sort of, you know, every generation might say that. But um, they uh, they do things differently. They like working from home and they like um, experiential things. They're just, you know... A lot of clubs have been shut down. There's lots... There is that. I was lucky to get... The tale, the last. So my my brother's a bit older than me. He was born in seventy six. So he's forty three. Mm. And he was like the generation. They had raves. They had like that kind mm. of stuff. And then, but what do you guys do? I mean, nobody. What thirty six? I'm 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 too old. I'm too old to be going out now. I'm old and boring. But they don't go to pubs really. They do they not really? Oh, I'm sure they do. I drink so much when did I worked in newsrooms. Just you just you need a lot of steam in a really specific mm. way, and I think. It's, it's maybe doing lots of different jobs, but like when you deal with stories that do have a lot, a lot of stories have trauma within them, for instance, and you crack on and get the story done and talk to the person and do it. 
but actually, yes, kind of let it off as well and only your colleagues get it. Yeah, yeah. that's true. So I, I think really miss the camaraderie of a newsroom. Yeah. Because they have really dark humour. Yes. Some really, it is full of very funny, witty people. Tell me about how you sort of went from style and how you felt moving over to soda. Right. So, so I um, was sort of made redundant or fired or, it, I mean, whatever way you call it, it, you know, for whatever reason, commercial reasons, or they just wanted someone else in. So, um, and that was, that was really difficult. And, um, and I didn't really see it coming for some reason. I don't know why. If you're in your 50s, just expect to be fired the next, anytime soon. Because having spoken to a lot of people, it's like, yes, that's what will happen to everybody. We will all get fired. In journalism or in general? Really, in general. Lots of people go in their 50s from their jobs because they're expensive by that stage and when cuts are coming, people are, you know, um, they always look, look, you know, to get get rid of the people at the top. But but it was a great, it was a great, um, it turned out to be fortuitous, really, because you're made to do something different. I could have gone back into a newspaper, but I just didn't really, I just really didn't want to. And I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really regret it. I, I just think you're made to do, to, to learn other things. And I joined this young tech startup and got to meet lots of people and just, I got to learn, you know, and it's always great to learn about new things. And I really had to up my tech skills. Pronto. <laughs> what do they make you learn? I didn't know anything. I literally didn't know how to attach a picture to an email. I had no idea what that clip was for because I literally was orchestrating the magazine and I didn't have to do any of the the actual um, the admin stuff. And anyway, I, I sort of was a bit... I'd missed out all the way along the line. So... Um, I could just about work my iPhone, but um, but so I had to I had to just learn all that. I had to learn how to use Google spreadsheets and all, all the things they took for granted. The spreadsheets are a nightmare. Well, they're a nightmare, yeah, aren't they? They really are. I agree. And with you. you'd lose copy, and then they'd slightly get they 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 used to get quite short tempered with me because they just didn't understand why I didn't know it. Innately. That's that's really hard. I think that's kind of a function of life now, and it's a bit unfair. It's it's because change has happened so quickly, mm. and it kind of passed lots of people by. But it's I like how you said orchestrated with your job because I think a print magazine there is an element of you need the still eye in the calm of the storm. Mm. Yes, it's because you have to balance everything and the front page, and have you got this type of thing, and you need a bit of. We hired um, Marianne Keys for a while, and she always gave really great sort of anecdotal copy and full of emotion. And then there would be, you know, somebody just writing about dating, and then there'd be just great fashion. And it, you had to really balance everything out. Um, on a, yes, on a startup, it's bit more brutal and it's just a different type of business you had to had to learn about retail 
and you know VCs and uh, you know it was a whole different and that whole commercial world that I'd been shielded from for a very long time I suddenly had to really embrace that now having been in the tech world for a while and I look at the newspapers and I think I wonder why they're not chasing up that story on Facebook hello Facebook spend a lot of money with them on advertising every year and I wonder why you know we're not saying what's happening with 5G and EE. Well, EE just, you know, did a wrap for my newspaper. So it's, it's, there's a very blurred line now between stories and commercial interest. Because the, indus- the journalism industry is in such need of money. Yes. It makes it very vulnerable in that way. It does. I think it, it compromises the editorial content. I think there are some papers, I think, New York Times does really well and goes after every big story, but I'm sure that there's a list on every editor's desk that are sort of untouchables, friends or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It's There was always that, but I do think commerce has really played a huge part in, in where news goes these days. So they call it Soda? So, yeah, Soda, School of the Digital Age, and it's actually called Soda Says now because we picked the world's most popular name in soda so um tech products and tech accessories aimed at women really um and no one would have been talking to women about tech it was you know the fourth floor of john lewis and it was all men and it was all black and shiny so um so grace gould the founder did a you know great job in spotting this sort of gap in the market and um yeah and it's we got into america last year and we we had a um, we did a, the Q4. We'd had Christmas in Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom, and we were in Selfridges, and and now we've sort of just really got our eye on America, and because um, we don't know what the heck's happening here. So, um, so yeah, so, so it, and it changed all the time. Every month, things were changing. So it's kind of edit of the best, edit of the best sort of tech stuff out there, wellness you know, kids, stuff, home, lighting. And, um, yeah, so that was, a, that was a, a big change. And I do a newsletter every week. So um, so I had, I, so I did that on MailChimp, and now we've just changed to Clavio. But you, so it's like I just nailed MailChimp. Nope, all changed. We're going to Clavio. Fine. <laughs> I've just changed my newsletter. I've gone to Substack now. Okay. Every every week, and I have done for two years now, I send out this um, on a Sunday quite early. So I take one story a week in tech, which is, you know, tech usually your people's eyes glaze over. So I take it and I sort of do a Guardian's pass notes on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I just make it very fun. And I have these, sometimes have these two personas. So it's a bit like the Q&A, like a, the Guardian pass notes. But then sometimes I have 10 things you didn't know or so it's very um, palatable. And then I just have a little intro of what the company's doing this week or what so I've got a talk that will write on Monday. Is that the, 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 the AI one? Piece. No, it's about AI. So, yes, it's a co-working yeah. space. It's a women-only co-working yeah. space. I think I'm talking about, um, hey, Alexa, how sexist are you? I'd say if, if someone asked me for three tips on content or how to write well, um, I would say you have to know your audience. So really, um, so our audience, uh, so just says newsletter is, 
they're never going to read Wired, but they kind of know they have to know something about tech, and they um, and it has to be conversational. So I, I have sort of planned out this very conversational, anecdote-heavy newsletter. Anecdotes, I can't tell you. Lots of people don't even know what an anecdote is. When you say, give me an anecdote, they, they just give you a narrative, which is not the same at all. You know, I want, I think, a story about specific things that have happened are endlessly fascinated and they can be retold and everyone remembers little stories. So I'd say, know your audience, know what an anecdote is and fill your copy or your content with great anecdotes. Um, and my third one is to really try and build an authentic voice, you know, so that um, they know that it's it's you. And and some people are really, really good at that. Um, you know, you read some columnists and you think they just have it. I mean, Indian Night used to rattle off those beauty columns and they were brilliant and she... <laughs> I reckon she did them in about 20 minutes, but she she just knew her craft. And um, I think that's what will come if you do, if if the first two, if you can tick that first two box of knowing your audience and really getting great anecdotal copy, then you develop a lovely voice. And and then you can write anything. Then you can do books, you can do, I do a lot of book reviews, you can bring that to everything. There's nothing worse than a dead piece of copy. Amen. <laughs> Definitely. Thanks to Jackie Annesley for speaking to me and uh, for those tips at the end and for all those great stories. If you enjoy the podcast, please do rate, review and subscribe over on Apple Podcasts and why not tell a friend too? This helps our community grow and that enables me to keep making freelance pods.